Hey guys, hey, welcome uh, Crossing Church. So good to have you with us this Mother's Day, May 10th. Uh, it's a beautiful day to be here together. Glad you're with us. And we're continuing with our series, uh, uh, Who Is This Man uh, This Morning? And uh, basically, uh, we, we're continuing in this series and we, we want to talk about who Jesus is. It's a series entitled, Who Is This Man? Because we're trying to endeavor, uh, you know, who he is, to connect with him, for some of us, on a deeper level, or for others, for the very first time, as to who Jesus is is. Now, let me start off this morning by asking you a question. Here's the question. What do you think of when you hear the word teacher? Teacher. When I was a kid, around the third week of June each year, that, you remember that old nursery rhyme uh, we used to sing? You used, used to start making the, the rounds about the third week in June, right before you know, we, would, we were done for the summer. Remember it? It went like this. No more pencils, no more books, no more teachers. Yeah, dirty looks. You just sang it, right? You're sitting there in your living room with a cup of coffee and you sang it. Dirty looks. Okay. It was later reprised by uh, Alice Cooper in his song Schools Out, which, by the way, definitely did not have an innocent feel to it, but that's another story. Uh, but listen, uh, I never really felt that way about my teachers. I, I, for the most part, I didn't hate them. I really didn't. I liked most of them, except for... Mrs. Archibald in second grade, and I, she's probably gone by now, so if she's even watching this, she wouldn't be offended. But yeah, I liked my teachers for the most part. As I got older and went through the post-high school levels uh, of, in my case, theological training, I had instruction that God used to pry open my oftentimes closed mind. Men and women who patiently built precept upon wise precept into my life, and God used them to make profound changes in me. Every one of us, when I said teacher, probably was thinking about our favorite teacher, right? Who touched us. Teachers touch us. Good, dedicated teachers open up the world to us. They bring us to new places. And there was no greater teacher that ever walked the face of the earth than Jesus Christ. If we could stick yet another label on him, along with sacred friend and relentless lover and truthful revealer that we've explored the last few weeks, I initially thought, I know what I'm going to call this sermon, Supreme Teacher. That, that's, you know, because he was the supreme teacher. But then I kept thinking about it during the week, and I thought again. I thought about his style. And another word came to mind. Provocative. Provocative teacher. So I went to Webster's Dictionary, and this is what Webster's Dictionary tells me about the word provocative. It says this, quote, causing annoyance, anger, or a similar strong reaction, and then I love the last phrase, usually deliberately. It's not like Provocative people are like, oops, sorry. They want a reaction. They're provocative. Now, sometimes, think about this. Sometimes anger or Webster's strong reaction from a pupil is a good thing. The most effective teachers that I have sat under sometimes made me angry. In fact, I remember in my seminary days, there was one professor whose class I would leave. Some days I left confused. Most days I left angry. And when I think of the term provocative, I think of that guy because it really applied to him. Yet, there is no question in my mind that I learned more from him. I was shaped in a good way more by him than almost any teacher I have ever had. I became a better man through the influence of that provocative teacher. But make no mistake about it. Provocative teachers ruffle the feathers of the flock. They do it all the time. 
You may love them or you may hate them, but you definitely will not ignore them. Seldom is the reaction to them, you know, a yawn. Now, it's been rightly observed that few personalities have ever had the capacity to divide a room more quickly and more efficiently than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He said things like, I haven't come to bring peace, but a sword. Talk about provocative. His teachings dispelled people's myths. They sh- he shattered his teachings, their illusions of, of, of business as usual, because there was no business as usual. He made people think. Often people, while listening to him, were like, um, did you, did he just say, did, did you say that again? See, uh, that's what they did. He, he made them ask questions of themselves as to, as to motivation. Oh, you pray, you give, you serve. Great. Okay, tell me, why do you pray? Why do you give? Why do you serve? Why do you, why do you do the things that you do? Well, all the time, always, always confronting their unbelief. Always. He bid mature adults to take on the inquisitive nature of a child. And for all those who sat in his class, he promised them how to live a life of glory and significance. A better way to live and the only way to die. But he wanted them to know what they were getting into. One of the more frustrating things you'll ever experience is to get into something and then once you're there, you find out it wasn't at all what you thought it was. Or, or signing onto something. I, you know, we got a new cable company with our move and they, and they, they quoted me a price. I said, well, gee, that's, that's pretty good. And then, you know, when you, when you get the bill, there was all these other taxes and this and that. And it was like, this is as much as I was paying, you know. And, and it's, it could be frustrating when you find out the real hidden costs later on. We've all done that. And you know what Jesus was saying? Jesus was saying, come, by all means, come and join me. But if you do, I want you to know what the true cost is. Because if you determine to be my disciple blindly, there's going to come a day in the not-too-distant future where you will find yourself desperately disappointed. Better if you never came at all. So, Jesus tells them two things that they would have to do in order to be his disciples. Two things that would lead them to live a life of glory and a life of significance. To be a Christian, basically, is to be a disciple. To put Christ first. To kiss everything else goodbye. Yet, you know, when you hear words like Pastor Peter just read a couple of minutes ago, you know, hate your father and mother, your wife, your children, your brothers and sisters... You go, wait, 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 wait a minute. Time, you know, say that again? It sounds absurd. What's Jesus doing here? Well, what Jesus is doing is he's taking the closest relationships that we have here on this earth, and he's saying that all of them must take a backseat to me if you would be my disciples. Talk about being provocative. Everybody takes a backseat. You need to know that in a patriarchal society, in a patriarch, patriarchal society, that family was 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 life itself. In a Western society, we don't understand this in the very same way. Our families are very important to us. They're very important to us. But to them, family was life. This is what life consisted of. Your life revolved around your family, not only you know your own uh, nuclear family, but your extended family. 
And, and I know a lot of people who are listening to me this morning, uh, we, we have a lot of people from other uh, countries and other cultures that go to the Crossing Church, uh, you, you know, who came from there. You, you know how vastly different family was looked at sometimes than in American culture. See, because here in the U.S., a lot of times we think in individual terms. We think of individual rights. We think of individual preferences. But then, and in fact, in many spots of the world today, like I just said, they thought in terms of groups. For instance, when you, uh, when you sinned greatly, yeah, you, you didn't bring just disgrace on yourself. You brought disgrace on your family. You know, you, you had some great success. They threw a party because everybody was in the spotlight. It was good for everybody. You never embarrassed your family. You never moved away from your family. Here is what Jesus is saying to this ancient culture. Consider the normal way you look at living, how you do it right now. And if you want to follow me, rearrange it all. You got to rearrange everything. All the ways that you have been taught need to now come under closer scrutiny. And by the way, he even said in that same passage that was read, uh, you even have to hate your own life. He uses that word hate. It's a very extreme word. Yet, he didn't mean hate in the sense of active hostility. Jesus exhorted, how do I know that? Because a lot of times, um, he told his disciples to love their enemies. When Jesus was literally hanging on the cross, he was being tortured to death in agony. And he said, Father, forgive them. He's not advocating honor killings. The word hate can mean active hostility in Scripture, and sometimes it does. But it also has a couple of other meanings. Hate can also be used to show comparison. For instance, in Genesis 20, uh, 29, you find that Jacob, the son of Isaac, the patriarch, he had two wives. One was Rachel, the other was Leah. Rachel he loved, and Leah, his other wife, it says he hated. Now, Jacob uh, was not actively hostile to Leah. No, we, we have no indication of that at all. In fact, in verse 30, it comes right out, and it says that he loved Rachel more than Leah. The word hate was used in a comparative sense there. The word's also used in another way. It's used of God's sovereign choice. Paul in Romans 9 quotes from Malachi 1, and he says this. He says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau. When it came down to whose descendants were ultimately going to be blessed for God's purposes and in the own counsel of his will, he chose Jacob. And it wasn't because Jacob was such a sterling character. Jacob was a bum for most of his life. Go read the story in Genesis. The point is, the word there is not only used to show comparison, it's used to show choice. And when push comes to shove, it was this and not that. It was him and not him. What Jesus was saying was that when it comes down to it, if you want to follow me, you must decide to put me first, to choose me over every other relationship in your life. And your love for me must be greater than your love for every other relationship that you presently have. That is a choice. He's saying, basically, I want you to delight in me. I want you to embrace me, to enjoy me, to rest in my love and I in yours. He's saying, I want something that makes all the other loves in your life pale in comparison. See, being a disciple is not just being there whenever the church doors open, especially now, or studying the scriptures 
really, really hard, or even applying them to your life. Being a disciple at the core of it means loving Christ, loving His Word, loving His person. But sometimes we don't. It may be one of the reasons that sometimes our prayer life stinks. You know, why we examine the Word and it's really weak, and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really, you know, flint does, does not strike rock and a spark ignite. It, it seems a lot of times we do the right thing, but we do it under protest. If that's the case, hey, listen, it's a tip-off that the wrong thing is powering our life. He's saying, don't just do your duty, but love me. St. Augustine proves this is the essence of what it means to be a disciple. He spoke about that. He preached about that all of his life. In, in his confessions, uh, St. Augustine said that the essence, the very key to transformed character, the key to a glorious life, the key to a significant life, and God's grace poured out in an individual life, the key to courage and the key to forgiveness and the key to peace and the kind of heart that you want to have, it's not willpower. It's not trying harder. It's not working harder. It is, according to St. Augustine, the right ordering of our loves. Augustine argued that for one to be virtuous, for one to be blessed, his or her loves must be rightly ordered. That is, one must not only love the right things, but to have to love them in the right order. For instance, I love chicken parmesan. Give me uh, chicken parmesan, a little side order spaghetti out that, you know, not, not, not soft, not overcooked. Maybe a little side salad with some good bread with butter. Uh, you may convince me that I died and went to heaven. Now, I know I really didn't, but it feels like that sometimes. But if you came up to me and said, um, Tim, uh, wh what do you love more, chicken parm or your family? If I said, well, chicken parm, you would think there's something really wrong with me. And guess what? You would be right. There's nothing wrong with loving chicken parm. But if I love it more than my grandkitties, that love has become a vice. It's almost become an evil. I love my grandkitties. I love my family. But if I love them and are devoted to them more than I am to God, they have literally become a vice. And here's the problem with fallen human beings. We are born into a condition of sin, including wrong, wrongful and wrongly ordered loves. And only a life united to God can begin to heal this terrible situation. Wrongly ordered loves. Things that are good in and of themselves, chicken parm, it's good, great. But stuff like that, wrongly ordered loves can become idols. They can become things that literally keep us from God. Here's the first point. If you would lead a life of glory and significance, you first need to order your loves correctly. Is it wrong to want a job or even a good job where you receive a sense of satisfaction, something that you studied for in college, something that you love? Perhaps, you know, you, you know your, your dream job? Is that right? No, it's not wrong. But when it comes to the whole, if it becomes a holy grail in your life, and we love it more than we love the sovereign God of the universe. It has become an evil. It's become a vice. Augustine says the problem in every case when we are eaten up with a sense of failure or we have a lack of confidence or we worry or cowardice or anger or bitterness is that something or someone <clears throat> has become too important in our heart. Maybe your parents' opinion is too important to you. 
And it's, it's literally got you by the throat. It's choking you. Maybe your friends are too important. Money, the job, too important. It's become an object of your affection over everything else. Those are wrongly ordered loves. You know, a lot of times we feel like we can't get free of them. That there is no solution. Is there a solution? Well, I, I think there is. I think there's a good solution. I think there's a bad solution. <laughs> uh, you know, you could address it in a couple of ways. First, you could address it in the bad, the bad way. Uh, you could uh, actively try and hate. You know, the hostile type of hate. Keep saying to yourself this. My parents are idiots. Repeat after you. My say it, say it, keep saying it, saying it, saying it. And when you say that enough times, you may get just a morsel, just a tiny morsel of freedom. Say the same thing about someone who's rejected you or hurt you. They don't know anything. You know, keep trashing them in your mind and in the presence of others whenever you get a chance. Or when you don't get the career, you don't get the job you thought you should have. You say to yourself, repeat these words, I don't really care. The people in that industry, they're all a bunch of morons anyway. Everybody in the industry is so full of themselves. I hate everybody in that industry. I'm so glad I didn't get that job. See, keep saying that to yourself and as a method of freeing yourself and you'll get a little tiny bit of freedom. But you'll end up destroying part of yourself in the process because you'll become bitter and angry and you will impact everybody around you, whether you know it or not. But there's another way. The other way is to overcome what your parents think of you or what your friends say of you, or what your heart tells you is wrong with you by loving God more. The thing you need from going to be, from a coward to being a courageous person, the thing you need from going from uh, a bitterness to peacefulness, the thing you really need from uh, going from inferiority to confidence, not superiority, but being confident, is the love of Jesus Christ. That has to become so real to you that it will literally eclipse all other things. See, our problem is that we love Christ too little in relationship to all other things. And when that happens, the wrong thing is powering our lives. We need to order our loves correctly. The essence of a transformed character is to hate all those other things, comparatively speaking. You have to have and receive that kind of love. And it's there. Jesus said, come follow me. Order your loves correctly. I'll, I'll challenge you to do things that you never were able to do on your own without my help. I'll challenge you to let your children go. Not abandon them but to get things in order for you and for them. Because here's the scary thing. Did you know that when our loves are in a messed up order, we can actually help destroy those around us? We can end up destroying those closest to us. I remember um, years ago, there was a young woman, really wonderful young woman in our congregation. And she heard the voice of God leading her into vocational service for him. I had no doubt about it you know, in our conversations. Her parents, though, good Christians, good Christian people, they would have none of it. So she sat me down one day and she said, Pastor Tim, it's not going to work. This is just not going to work. They are going to fight me every step of the way. So, you know, I knew that this woman seemed to have a clear calling of God in her life. And I, I kind of, you know, just gently pushed back a little bit. And she said, look, Pastor Tim, you don't understand. In my culture, in our background, Education and attaining the highest level of achievement in the professional world, it's everything. 
If I decided to go and become a missionary, my parents would be literally horrified. They're perfectly willing to give large sums of money for other children to go, but if I ever went, it would be as if they had raised their daughter to underachieve, to settle for less, to walk into a world where my paycheck was dependent on the generosity of others and of God, that just will never fly with them. And because of the parents, those parents' own worries and fears and plans for their daughter, for one they loved desperately, they literally helped block the good plans of Christ in her life. See, when we order our loves correctly, we will live a life of glory and significance. But if they're out of order, we'll miss out. See, order your loves correctly first. Second thing, if you would lead a life of glory and significance, order your lives correctly. Order your loves correctly. Two, order your lives correctly. Look at verse 27. Verse 27 says, and if anyone uh, who does not carry, uh, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. He calls those who would follow him to bear the cross. Now, Bearing one's cross does not mean putting up with some physical infirmity. You know, I got my knee, my elbow. It may be part of something, but it's certainly not the whole thing. It's not mental anguish. My spouse is my cross. It means to choose the pathway of reproach, to choose the pathway of suffering and, 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 and loneliness, and even death in some cases, which a person voluntarily chooses for Christ's sake. You know, a condemned criminal was forced to carry a bar of his cross to the place of execution. We've all seen the movie, right? And he literally was on a one-way journey. He wasn't coming back. To take up the cross daily is to live each day, not for yourself, but for Jesus Christ. To come after Christ, to bear his cross, means to live the same type of life that Christ lived on the earth. A life of, of, of self-renunciation, humiliation, persecution, reproach, Temptation and opposition by sinners against him. We are to take up our cross and follow him. Tim Keller wrote that, the, quote, to take up the cross means one thing, to put yourself in the place of a condemned criminal, unquote. Now that sounds very negative, but it's not. What condemned criminal are we putting ourselves in the place of? What condemned criminal are you supposed to be identifying yourself with? Jesus. See, the essence of discipleship is to realize that when I died, he says, you died. Identify with me, Jesus says. When you saw a man walking with a cross, you knew that that was the last thing that person was ever going to do. You don't, walk, you don't walk with a cross, and then you say, uh, you know what, this isn't working out for me. I thought it might be kind of a purifying thing. It might kind of make me a better man, a better woman. But I, I, I don't think I'm into this anymore. Paul put it like this in Colossians chapter 3. He said, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And the minute you trust Jesus Christ, you died on the cross with him, Paul was saying. God looks at you as if you paid every cent of your penalty of sin. If you are a person who believes in Jesus and you beat yourself up all the time, you know what? Stop. Don't do that anymore. Why? Because God sees you as if you've already been beaten up. 
You've already been flogged. You've already been crowned with a crown of thorn. You've already been speared. You've already been nailed to the cross. You have paid it all. Your life has been hidden with Christ and God. Now, when God looks at you, he sees what Jesus has done. We have a term around the crossing. A lot of you know it. He sees you with what? Christ-colored glasses. When he looks at you, he sees Jesus. And so every day you get up, remind yourselves of who you are in Christ. We need to remind ourselves that we have died, that, that, that we have nothing to prove, that we're accepted, and remind ourselves of what Jesus did in order to get that to become a reality. Every day you take up the cross. You live in its shadows. On the one hand, listen, we're, we're, we're living a life of sacrificial service, no question for Jesus, but it also means that um, I'm doing it out of the fullness of what I know he did for me. It's out of gratefulness. It's from a full heart. It's a different motivation. When you become a disciple, it means you're no longer your own. You're no longer an independent you know, person. That's what it means to ordering your life correctly. When we order our lives correctly, when we order our loves correctly, then and only then will we be able to live a life of glory and significance that God has for us. Order your lives correctly. But remember something. It doesn't happen overnight. It's Christians, listen, it is a process. Seeing the demise of the old life is not like a, it's not like a firing squad, dying by a firing squad. It's over in two seconds. Discipleship is a process. You know, with a firing squad, one minute you're alive, the next second you're dead. Crucifixion isn't like that. Crucifixion is slow. It's a slow death. It is a, it is a painful death. It's, it's gradual. But you need to know this. We serve a patient God. And he's ready to be patient with you. And he has been patient with you and will continue to be. Unless you hate your father and your mother, your wife, your children, even your own life, even your own safety, unless you take up your cross and follow him, you cannot be his disciples and you cannot experience the life of significance and glory that he has waiting for you. And folks, I gotta tell you something. That's about as provocative a statement as you can make. When we order our loves, when we order our lives correctly, we will live a life of glory and a life of significance. And that it, what it, that's what it means to be a disciple. That's our call. It's not a call. Listen, it's not a call of self-loathing, hating yourself. You know, it, That's in itself is so self-centered. You're absorbed with yourself continually. You know, you're sensing your failure and how people are looking at you. We are being called to crucify our egos, ourselves, based on the crucifixion of Jesus. He's talking about self-forgetfulness, not self-loathing. It is a joyful thing when you say, I know who I am in him. I know what has happened. And so, you know, if I'm snubbed, I'm snubbed. I don't get the job. It's not the most important thing in the world to me. That is what it means to live in the shadow of the cross. There's no middle way. Either you've taken up the cross or you haven't. Either you're living in the light of what he has done for you or you're not. But know this. When we order our loves and our lives correctly, he's promised us a life of glory and a life of extreme significance. When Jesus calls you to the cross, he's saying, I call you to a life of glory and greatness. Not an easy life. Not necessarily an easy life. 
I didn't have an easy life, he says. On his way to the cross, you know that Jesus was on his way to glory and greatness. Not a smooth future there. That's why he wanted his disciples to know what they were signing up for. He wanted them to know the cost of being a follower of his. There is this all or nothing feel to this provocative teaching, to this provocative teacher. And listen, when you think about it, it would have been unthinkable. Could you imagine someone going to Jesus and saying, well, I'm a follower of yours, Jesus. I know I shouldn't be doing this, and I know I shouldn't be doing that. And, you know, there's some things in Scripture that I think, you know, are outdated, and I don't, you know, I don't think we really want to, I, I, a lot of it I like, some of it, that, but I'm still a Christian. That would be almost unthinkable. You go, wait, what? Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. See, that will never be the path to a life of glory and significance. When we order our loves and our lives correctly, he has promised us a life of glory and significance. That is the path. That is the way of the follower, of the one who is the way, who is the truth, who is the life. Final question. Are you ready, really ready, to follow him?